Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'll take you for a ride on the devil's ship. I'll take you for a ride where you sink or swim. Now come with me and let this story begin. <laughs> so Chris... Um, again, thank you for, for fucking coming to do this. Uh, I found out recently you're Canadian. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, Canadian, born and raised just outside of Toronto. I'm from Pickering, Ontario. Went to Wilfrid Laurier University. And now I've been in the U.S. for a little over 10 years. 10 years. Okay. So you've been there for a while. And did you, I saw the, um, I first saw you from interviews that you were doing on YouTube uh, that were all wrestling related. And then yeah. I realized that I had already seen you doing a lot of those behind the scenes interviews before movie premieres. And I was like, how the hell was I unaware that he was a wrestling guy that was, did you, did you leave? Cause you really wanted to get into interviewing or was it wrestling the passion that made you move? So wrestling's been like a big passion of mine my entire life. Like I've always been like a lifelong wrestling fan. In fact, I wanted to be a pro wrestler. I trained in Toronto. At, you have the uh, build. The squared circle. Well, thank you. I, I, I just, I like working out. I, I love watching wrestling and I was a backyard wrestler growing up. So I was like, well, might as well give this a try. Now it was a little more than that. I was super passionate about it and thought I could legitimately do it. But to answer your question, I, I've always been fascinated by broadcasting. Like I have been in love with broadcasting since I was four years old. Had a Fisher Price tape recorder that had a microphone. I pretended to be a radio DJ. Grew up as a big Blue Jays fan and I still am. And Tom Cheek and Jerry Howarth were the Toronto Blue Jays radio announcers. Yeah. And I would pretend to be them on like my little tape recorder. So my pat, my first love was broadcasting for sure. And I had communication studies class in high school where we got to learn all the different things within a newsroom. Like I was an on-air host. I was an audio person, a camera operator, VTR, audio, all of those different things. And I always loved being in front of the camera. So one thing kind of led to another and being an on-air host started doing some interviews with celebrities, started doing some interviews with wrestlers and I was realizing that not a lot of people were getting this kind of access to interviews with wrestlers. Like when someone's going to promote a movie, Denzel Washington's going to talk to hundreds of people to promote his movie. Jake Gyllenhaal, hundreds of people, Anne Hathaway, whoever it is. With wrestlers, they come into town and unless you're an actual wrestling fan, you're probably just going, oh, hey, uh, Raw is in town tonight and tickets begin at four, $40, $20, John <laughs> yeah, yeah. Senna. John Kenna. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, and I was like, no, I'm a big fan. I was actually asking legit questions. So that's kind of where it all started for me with the wrestling. Okay. It's, it's crazy to me that because of you, I got into, uh, I started to like wrestling again. Uh, I had, when I was younger, I loved the attitude era. I was big into WWE. I was a big Austin sure. guy. I loved Kane, uh, NWO, obviously in WCW that, that was big for me. But then I kind of, you know, I got older. The PG era did nothing for me. It wasn't, I guess it yep. wasn't targeted to guys like me. 
And then I fell on an interview with you and I think it was Tony Khan. Oh, wow. I didn't know who he was. And because of that interview, I was like, fuck, this is a likable guy. Uh, I want to know what's going on down there. And then I believe you did something with Cody Rhodes. And that's how I Mm -hmm. found out about the writing system at AEW, how they were letting the wrestlers kind of do their own thing and be creative. And you rekindled that excitement. I was like, you know what? Let me check what, what this is all about. And it was because wow. of an interview that started with you. Yeah, I'm telling you, because you gave your um, the your interview style is very comfortable, which I enjoy. Uh, even the Boss Rutan thing that you did uh, a little while ago. Because I'm waiting, I'm, I'm on the waiting list. I want to get one of those oxygen uh, things to oh, see nice. if I, yeah, because I think it'll help. Really, they're life changing. Yeah, I still play a lot of hockey. I want to improve my lung capacity. But I remember the Tony Khan one. I was like, this guy's so likable. I want to support his organization, and I felt like it needed it. You you made it very clear. That's what we needed. We needed a bit of choice. We needed people to get creative. And it was all because of you. Yeah, you got me into oh that stuff. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. What a huge compliment. So I super appreciate that. And I will say in 2019, I got very fortunate. I had a, a series of a lot of events that happened where I was either friends with people who had been signed to AEW or friends of friends with people who had signed with AEW. And it kind of became a domino effect. So... A very good friend of mine is connected with Chris Jericho. So okay. a few days after he signed, he was doing an autograph signing and a live podcast like five hours from where I lived. And I texted him and said, if I drive up there, will you do an interview? He's like, absolutely. So I literally drove five hours to do an interview. If you look it up on YouTube, it's we're in the backseat of his car. I saw that interview. <laughs> and it was the first interview he did after being the major signing for AEW. So it was like 20 minutes of like, why did you choose AEW? I thought you were never going to leave WWE. What's next? And this video ended up getting like a ton of traction, like a million views. And then through Jericho doing an interview with Tony Khan, who was now his new boss, I said to Jericho, I said, I'd love to have Tony Khan on my show. Do you think that's possible? He's like, I don't know. I'll ask him. We'll see if it can happen. And because I interviewed Jericho, the Tony Khan interview happened. And then because I did that interview, I got another interview with Cody Rhodes, who I'd interviewed a year before when he was with Ring of Honor. And then it was the Young Bucks after that. So it was like one domino kind of hit another. And if you were looking up anything to do with AEW in the first part of 2019, I was really fortunate to have some big interviews with some of the big players before AEW had even had one minute of one match. I was convinced you were part of the, they would make you an official person of the broadcast team, AEW, because like this guy's, this guy fits the mold. Because I saw you and the way you were conducting the interviews, you were a likable, remember Jonathan, remember Coachman? Remember Coach? Of course, yeah. yeah. The, the, the problem with Coach was that we love to kind of hate him. He was a little annoying. You was the opposite. It's like, all right, this guy's likable. Let's see what he's up to. So I thought this is a perfect fit. I bet you this guy's going to do all of the AEW online stuff, interviews, you know, post-match. This would be amazing. Uh, they should think about that. You should throw that in there. That would be a great idea. But yeah, I thought that's what you were leaning towards. I thought it was perfect. Well, they I thought it was had a, good a pretty fit. stacked broadcast team of people that were doing the backstage interviews. And after doing all these interviews that I just described, they reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to be part of our first show? And I'm like, uh, yeah, for sure. Like to be a small little tiny part of history, like the first wrestling show on TNT in almost 20 years, like it was a no brainer. So I was part of the first broadcast, which was two years ago this week. It was October 2nd, Crazy. 2019 in Washington, DC. It was so cool to be part of that. But I've, I've done so many things outside of wrestling that I was really happy to do that, but I didn't know if it would turn into anything more. I ended up being on one more episode a few weeks later 
in Charleston, South Carolina, which was amazing. But man, I've been so fortunate to spend most of my career interviewing celebrities, hosting different TV shows, but still being a wrestling fan, still having that passion. So every once in a while, I dip my toe into the wrestling world as a ring announcer or the backstage interviewer or something like that. But the other foot is like so firmly planted <laughs> in the world that I came up in, which was broadcasting. So it's amazing to be able to do both. And what's your, because uh, I like the the podcast. I saw Greg Sestero. You had him. Uh, yeah, oh, I just, I, I, that's today's episode. Yeah. Did, what it, so, so did you, because I know myself when I started podcasting, I f at first I would only have comedians and then I started to be like, you know what? I have other interests. I want to bring in other people. Is that kind of what you're doing? You're like, I'm like the room, the room. I love that you're a fan of that because it's, it's one of my cult films that oh, I go crazy mark. for. You know, fan, I mean, are we fans of The Room oh. or are we not? I don't know how we describe it. I think Huge I'm a fan. fan. Yeah. I have seen The Room, I think, more than I've seen any other movie ever. <laughs> just <laughs> because I first found out about the experience of The Room. Because you don't just watch The Room. No. You experience The Room. And you can't, you can't stream The Room at home. Don't even think about it. You need to go to a theater. You need to go <laughs> to a screening. You need to bring a big bag of plastic spoons and, go, and a football and go and enjoy it. Yeah, and you need people yelling the lines out. So my best friend, Chris, told me about this in 2009. I was still living in Toronto. He goes, this is the best worst movie. This is the Citizen Kane of bad movies. We need to go see this. And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, this thing sounds pretty terrible. And I went and we had the best time. And then when I moved to Cleveland a year later, I convinced all my friends there that we needed to go to midnight screenings. And we went to midnight screenings like every month for several months. God damn, so I've seen the movie. Was this when he was touring? Was this when he was touring the... No, this was just... I, I actually have never seen the movie with Tommy Wiseau or with Greg Sestero. I've just, you know, midnight screenings at a local independently owned cinema. And it'd be so cool to go there with a room full of other room... A room full of other room fans. <laughs> this is, I'm surprised that he didn't uh, cash in on this better because apparently when it first came out and, it's, and he didn't realize that it was going to be a hit for the wrong reasons... He didn't properly market it. So he, his money was being made when he was going on tour to screen it, yeah. like signing autographs. But I think he could have banked on this way better. Well, I think he's still, now that we're, you know, hopefully kind of past the worst part of COVID, he is back on tour, okay. at least a little bit with it. But yeah, I just want to interview interesting people. Like I'm fascinated with the idea that if someone is at the top of their game, like how did they get there? whether they're a wrestler or a comedian or an entrepreneur or a director or whatever. I want to break down their story because I think, unfortunately, all we see, especially on social media, is the finished product. You know, we don't, we see Oprah and Denzel and LeBron and Tom Brady. We see the finished product. We don't see them like struggling to make it. We don't see the 15 years or whatever it was of Kevin Hart, like struggling to get a break and then yeah. finally gets a break and he's everywhere. And I think that people see the finished product and go, oh yeah, well it must be easy for them. And I want to be able to reverse engineer their story. Number one to show it's not that easy. We've all had a journey to get to wherever we are with whatever you're doing in yeah. your own life. And number two, if somebody else has done the thing that you want to do, that just means it's possible for you to do it as well. Do you feel like trying hard enough to make it happen? God damn it. It's like uh, we grew up together. We ha I had this conversation an hour before we did this podcast. I was with uh, one of the editors here and uh, Poseidon, who normally produces the other shows on uh, on my channel. And we were saying the same thing. Because, yeah, we keep getting these comments of, oh, you're so lucky and you've done this and it looks easy. And it's like, it was 10. When I started podcasting in 2010, 
people around me couldn't fathom what podcasting was like. Why are you oh, wasting yeah. your time? What is this internet radio? What's going on here? So all the same thing with comedy. They're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, bars telling jokes. This is stupid. So yeah. all of those years of putting the work, and then you, I was thinking about this earlier because when I found out you're Canadian, I was like, wait, wait a second. So that means that this must have been a journey and a half. Because yeah. for you to, what prompted decision? When did you move? Plus, you said you were in Cleveland, uh, we're in Jacksonville, Miami. Where haven't you lived? Yes, at this point, I've lived in more American cities than I lived. I've lived in Canadian cities, which is crazy. So, what prompted it for me was, you know. Kind of my story in a nutshell was I went to Wilfrid Laurier University, studied communication studies, was having the best time there. Like, as you know, university life is sure it's a little bit about studying, going to class, but it's a lot about like the friendships and the connections that you yeah. make, the beer that you drink. Right. So it's a lot of hanging out. House with, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was living in a house with four of my best friends and it was fourth year. It was senior year. And I had this epiphany like it hit me like a ton of bricks. That when I graduated at the end of that year, I didn't get to decide if I wanted to go to work. I didn't get to decide if I wanted to sleep in today. Like you had to go to work nine to five, 40 hours a week for the rest of your life. And in that moment, I decided I don't want to be one of those people who hates their job. I don't want to be one of those people who can't stand Sunday because Monday is the next day. So I reached out to every radio station and every TV station in my college town. And this basically said, like, I'm passionate about broadcasting. I'm learning tons in school, but can I come in and see how it's done in the real world? And I just thought, like, if I can get some sort of real world experience, I can just stack the odds in my favor, really, like, build up my resume. And hopefully, if I'm lucky, get a job after that. So one radio station, 91.5 The Beat in Kitchener, Ontario, got back to me and said, you can be part of our street team, hand out stickers at events. I'm like, perfect, I'm there. Then we had Rogers Community Television in Kitchener as well, and it's run all by volunteers. So I got to do all the behind the scenes jobs and see how it was done. And then 570 News, an AM talk news station said, well, we don't take on volunteers, but how would you like a job? And I'm like, oh, okay. They said it only pays $8 an hour. I said, well, that's $8 more than I thought I was gonna make. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and within about a month of me having that epiphany, I now had two volunteer positions and a paid job in the actual broadcasting world. So kind of fast forward to graduation, I ended up getting an internship at Checks TV in Peterborough, Ontario. I kind of lied my way into an interview. I Sometimes getting- you gotta- seriously, I was getting, I was reaching out to all these places like global TV and CTV and city TV. No one was getting back to me. And it's so great to be able to talk about Canadian broadcasting with you because nobody's heard of any of these, you know, networks when I'm talking to someone in the U S I pretend they don't exist. Uh (laughs) Yeah, Pretty much like when I'm like George Strombolopoulos was a huge inspiration. They're like, yes, Gazintai, bless you. I'm surprised that more people don't know him. He was a great interviewer. He is a great interviewer. He's incredible. So I was getting no response from anybody about a potential internship. So I looked up the name and the contact information for the general manager at Checks TV in Peterborough, sent him an email and said, hey, it's reading week next week. I'm going to be in Peterborough. It'd be great if I could come by and just talk to you about a possible internship. Total, complete lie. Hadn't been to Peterborough in like 10 years, had no plans to go there. And he said, well, if you're going to be in town, sure, come on out. And I kind of talked my way into an internship. He said, we don't usually do this if, if you're not getting a college credit. But yeah, you know, look at what, look at the resume you've built. 
come on in. And my internship at first was me following around a videographer and watching them do their story. And when you're at a small station, you write, report, shoot, edit, you do it all. And two weeks into my internship, on my 22nd birthday actually, the assignment planner said, here's your story for the day. I said, great, yeah, which uh, reporter am I out with? They said, well, you're going out with Terry, but this is your story. You're gonna be on the six o'clock news. And my internship very quickly turned into me being an intern, like as a reporter. What was your and first story? That, was it something crazy? My first story was definitely not something crazy. They couldn't trust an intern <laughs> with like an actual story. <laughs> yeah. So mine was like a high school track and field meet. Like, oh, the best athletes in town are okay. here. And, you know, here's some high jump and here's some, you know, track and field. And it running. wasn't arson. <laughs> <laughs> arson in Peterborough, Ontario would have been a huge story. Like top story for yeah. like, a week. So... That internship ended up turning into a job. I was really enjoying the opportunity I was getting there. I learned every aspect of the business there. But I was like, I don't want to be a news reporter for like my whole career. I want to show some personality. And through a series of events, I found out about an opening in Vancouver on Razor, which was Much Music's sister station. It was MTV2 Canada is what it became. And oh. I did everything I could to just like get on their radar and let them know I even existed. Because I already had at this point like a year and a half of broadcasting experience. And you were sending and, in, what were you sending them in? Pardon me? What did you send in so that they know they're aware of you? So I couldn't really send in the news stuff I was doing at Checks TV because it was so different from what they wanted on MTV. So because I had access to the cameras at Checks TV, after my shift, I would go out and I would pretend like I would, oh, we're just about to interview the such and such band, you know, check out my interview. I would Smart. fake all these, what we call them standups in the industry. So I'd fake all these standups like, oh man, I remember Rocky Balboa was coming out. Oh, the new Rocky Balboa movie's coming out. Can't wait to see what Sylvester Stallone has to say in this interview right here. And I was faking all this stuff. So smart. It looked like I was actually doing it. Yeah. So they saw that and went, oh, okay. And again, they weren't going to bring me in for an interview. I lied and said I was going to be in Vancouver next Thursday. And they said, ah, oh, well, if you're going to be in town, yeah, come on in. And kind of lied my way into that job and got that job. So I was having a blast. We were on a national TV show interviewing celebrities. It's where I interviewed my first wrestler. I interviewed Bobby Lashley there when he was the ECW champion. And I was having the best time. And then after a year that big CTV and Chum merger happened. I was working for Chum. Chum got bought out by CTV and our show very quickly got canceled. Oh, shit. And I was like, what do I do? Like, I've just picked up my entire life, moved it to Vancouver, and now I don't have a job. So I had to decide pretty quickly, was I going to stay in Vancouver or was I going to, you know, go back to Toronto, go back to Pickering and live with my parents? And that's what I did. Packed up my car, drove 47 hours back home, and was applying for every job. And that's where the decision was made that I wanted to look outside of Canada. I but was when applying you went for back, all these jobs. I'm sorry? When you went back, were you in uh, motivation mode? Like, look, I got to find a way out of here. I know what I want to do now. I got to experience a bit. Or was it like depression where you said? Or a bit of both? I was so motivated. Okay. I was like, I now have two and a half years of broadcasting experience on a national TV show. I've interviewed some of the biggest celebrities in the world. Just give me an outlet. Like, let me go anywhere. I'm so ready for this. And I would be like final two for a job, final five for a job and then not get it. And I was so like, that's where I started to get like a little bummed out. I'm like, man, I'm, I've been so close. I have all this experience. Why can't I get the job? And that's where I started to go. If I can't get a job in Canada, I'm going to look elsewhere. 
And I reached out to an agency in LA and they brought me in, they signed me. And that's kind of where the journey began. That's where I went, all right, I'm just going to think a little bit bigger because unfortunately at that time, and we're talking 2007, if you weren't Rick Campanelli, Ben Mulroney or George Strombolopoulos, what kind of entertainment show were you going to host? Those I don't understand how ben, ben Mulroney ever did anything in entertainment. He's not an entertaining guy, but that's a, that's <laughs> oh, a, come on. No, he's, come on. No, 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 no. He's not a bad guy. There's nothing. I've never heard a bad story about him, but if you're telling me if I had a choice, there's a fucking Chris Van Vliet and there's a Ben Mulroney is a no brainer. This is crazy. That's uh, very kind, but the resume that Ben Mulroney has for himself, I mean, really speaks for itself. So that's, that's where the decision was made. I was like, I want to at least sign on with, uh, an agent in the U S and hopefully start getting some interviews and then we'll cross the visa green card bridge if, and when we come to it. And yeah. that ends up being, you know, a whole different story in itself. But that was really it. It was just, I kind of hit a wall where I went, I've been applying for literally everything. Haven't got anything. What's next. And what was next for me was looking beyond just Canada. It's crazy. When you think about how you had the experience, you had the talent and then, locally, let's say nationally in Canada, you're having trouble. Yet when you decided to think bigger for yourself, so many opportunities opened up in the biggest market in the in the Western world. Uh, it just shows how the perception here, I, I deal with comedians that we have that argument all the time. No matter how good you are, there's such a cap in Canada. If you're only focused on Canada, you limit yourself. It's this yeah. weird ceiling we put for ourselves. You have yeah. to look elsewhere. Hopefully it's to the States. Yeah, and that is not a knock against Canada. Like no, Canada no, it's just is the greatest country on earth. I'm so proud to be Canadian. I love Canada. All my favorite people and my like relatives live there, and I love it. And I think it's limited to the entertainment industry. I think for other yeah. vent, like if you're in something else, like music, there's a lot of successful musicians that come out of Canada and become mm -hmm. world. But for some reason, when it comes to broadcasting, stand up, things of that nature, directors, even it's like you have to go to the states. Yeah. And I think it's just that there's more exposure here and there's more opportunities here. Like the fifth largest city in Canada would be, you know, a medium sized city probably in the U S yeah. and I just think that there's a lot more opportunities here. So super grateful for the opportunities I've had that have brought me here and have allowed me to grow my career. But my heart always will belong to Canada. And I'll be oh, a obviously, Canadian citizen yeah. forever. Yeah, that would, that would be crazy. Yeah, if you just renounced your citizenship because you got a job. Yeah. No, How often do you come back? It was a lot more before the restrictions with COVID. But right. I've actually been home twice in the last two months. My sister lives in Calgary. So I was in Calgary in August, flew up there. My parents flew in. And then I was in Toronto last uh, three weeks ago. Oh, so shit. Two, three times a year, and then my parents come down two, three times. So, yeah, pretty frequently. And, you know, because of FaceTime, I get to see them every day. Technology's changed everything for us. Oh, it's changed everything. Yeah, look at me and you just online meeting and setting this up. This would have been impossible five years ago, six in years ago. In different countries, in different time zones right now, and we're talking like we're sitting next to each other. And, for, and I had misunderstood. I thought that you were in Miami right now. Mm. Had I known that you were in L.A., I would have done this later. To give you oh. more time, but it doesn't matter. You're like me. You're probably up early. Yeah, I've been up for hours. I had a boxing lesson this morning. Oh, good. That's what I want to hear. Are you yeah. going to get back into some type of physical wrestling? I don't think so. No, no one wants to see me in the ring. I don't know, but isn't that because I, I got a... So one of my best friends that I grew up with, he is, uh, I guess, his most famous claim to fame 
is that he got into a kerfuffle with Devon Dudley back in the day over here at the Bell Center. And oh. yeah, it led to, I think, a dismissal from the... It was this whole thing that happened. I had a, a wrestler here, Canadian wrestler, Jeremy Prophet, who was on my podcast a little while ago. Yeah. And he, he talked about... I didn't, It was just, you know, one of those stories of it's a small world. He asked me, he goes, do you know this guy? I said, yeah, that's one of my best friends growing up. He goes, have you heard the story of him at the Bell Center with Devon? I go, Devon Dudley, he was swearing at him during the match. Then after, they saw each other outside in the streets, and Devon went and like uh, rushed him. He said, what the fuck? You were talking a lot of shit or whatever the hell happened. No and, way. Yeah, and my buddy had gotten injured that, that, uh, that month. He got hit by a car, so his back was screwed up. And he started saying, wow. are you going to hit me? I'm handicapped. I don't know what the hell he was saying to him. And then uh, some wrestling, uh, one of those uh, dirt sheets online had picked up the story. Yeah. They had the photo of it. And then quietly, uh, I think the Dudleys were, were, it was that time when they had gotten like fired or whatever. And we always wanted to find out what the hell happened. Because Devon, I think, never answered that question. Like, was, was there anything that came of that? Was it because that became public and he looked like the bad guy? What I'm telling you, the real bad guy was my friend for talking so much shit. Yeah. <laughs> If I ever interview Devon, I'm going to ask him that. It's a strange, but uh, so I'm thinking, so this guy, through all the injuries, he has such a love for wrestling. If you'd give him yeah. a chance right now, he'd get in the ring. That's why mm -hmm. I find it hard to believe that if you give him the chance, you wouldn't do it. But the the difference is I would, I never completed my training. I've never had right. a match. If I had tasted that, I feel like I'd be right there. Like that's why wrestling retirements never last because I think that you get addicted to that experience that dictated to that crowd reaction. Yeah. So if I had done that, if I had wrestled a match, I've been part of matches, but if I had actually wrestled a match, yeah, I'm sure I'd want to get back in there badly. Do you ever have, um, cause you have so much experience broadcasting, you've interviewed so many people. Do you ever have trouble separating the, okay, should I ask these questions or interview this person based on the entertainment value as opposed to, let's say the character of a wrestler, let me protect that. So I shouldn't. And the, uh, what I'm thinking about when I asked that is I remember, uh, I remember like doing the whole Gawker Hogan era. Yeah. I, even though I was obviously curious, it's Hogan. I was totally against the way they were taking private stuff and putting them out. I was like, I understand mm. that it's a person of interest, but this is stuff that was said behind closed doors, stuff that was done behind closed doors. I don't think it's any of my fucking business. I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm like being a gotcha reporter. Yeah, I hate that shit. Journalist. Especially if someone in the podcasting world, someone's trusting you with an hour of their time. I would hate to have 59 minutes of a great conversation and then try to be like, aha, I got a sound bite out of you. It's crazy. Yeah. It's complete. But I understand. Like, I want, I want to have a respectful conversation with whoever it is. And if there's a topic that I think is maybe controversial or maybe it's going to be difficult to kind of talk about. I'll usually ask someone in the pre-interview like, Hey, I know you mentioned that thing before. Are you okay talking about it? And if they're like, no, please. No. Like sometimes it's for legal reasons. Like, no, I can't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> because if you make the guest feel awkward, their fans are now going to really dislike you. Yeah. And it's also, you're setting yourself up for failure because let's say what you do uh, at, to a higher extent than, than just the podcasting, the way you interview people, part of it is the comfort level. Part yeah. of it is they know ah, I'm in safe hands. Yeah. Just to get some kind of weird sound bite, you're setting yourself up for failure in the future because then not only does nobody trust you, but you yep. seem like that guy. It seems toxic. Like, ah, he just wanted to screw him over. I, I do understand, though, that if you're interviewing somebody and 
they had a really big event in their life where maybe they spent time in prison or maybe they had a really big controversy. I think that you can't sit with someone for an hour and not bring that up. And but, I think that usually they expect that as well. Yeah, but I think oftentimes, it's oftentimes oftentimes they'll broach the subject. They'll be like, "Well, you know, I really did learn a lot from rehab or I really did yeah. learn a lot from, you know, those 9 months in jail or whatever it happened to be." When it's publicly known like that, like I knew, let's say you were in prison and I asked you about it, I I find it different, but I always hated those again, the Hogan thing. I always hated something that was taken behind closed doors that was never meant to be public. Yeah. It's none of my business. It's not, yeah, I hate that and voyeurism. And it, you know, we're in the communication business and I think it's so important to have open communication about all that stuff, but also like a real amount of respect. And if someone is coming in to promote a certain thing and you're trying to like dig at them and take shots. Yeah. I don't think that you're ever going to interview that person again. And is it worth it to tarnish that relationship? Not only with that person, but with their publicist or the company they work for because you wanted to get one soundbite. And for me, I say no. Yeah, you, it's known. I mean, if you, if you look at your interviews, it's the complete opposite of that. You, it's, it's a good, very good comfort level. But, but at the same time, I do ask difficult questions, but I try to ask it in like a really respectful way and also a comfortable way. Like, I'm not going to start off the interview with like, all right, let's get right into the juicy stuff. Like, tell me about the time you hit your wife. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not going to do something like that. And also, like, I, I don't know if that's always my place. Yeah, I've often uh, thought about that specific questions that I'll ask during an interview if I have someone who there's something important to discuss. If it's something that was public, but public, I mean, it was intended to be public. Again, if it was jail time, things like that, I could bring that up. But the second a uh, sex tape leaked, or, I have zero interest, zero interest unless it's something they want to talk about because it was yeah. never meant for me in the first place. Yeah. So who the am I to comment? The only way I will start to bring that up is if they lead us down that path. Oh, of course, like, of course. Then yeah. You know, if they make an ambiguous reference to like, you know, so it was a dark time in 2004. You can be like, well, you know, what do you, what did you learn from that? And then yeah. maybe they can start to expand on it. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I was thinking about how right now, do you feel like, um, let's say the, the wrestling game, do you feel yeah. like the writing has gotten better or worse in comparison, not to what you felt when you were younger watching, because obviously it felt better. We Nostalgia glasses, everything seemed amazing. But <laughs> try to look at it objectively. Do you feel yeah. like right now the writing is better than it was before? I love that you bring up the point that nostalgia glasses make everything you know look better because it's so true. The Attitude Era was great. But if you watch a full episode of <laughs> pretty much any episode of Raw during the Attitude Era, you'll go... What's Naked Midian doing here? What's this other story? Like there was a lot of great stuff. Don't get me wrong. The Rock, Stone Cold, Vince McMahon, Undertaker, Kane, Triple H, Mick Foley. All that stuff was so good. And I'm obviously leaving out a bunch of names. Yeah. There's also a lot of storylines like Beaver Cleavage where you're like, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Did Triple H so, dress up as Kane, jump into a casket and pretend to rape a woman? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <Katie> <laughs> Vick, greatest storyline of all time. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that. Yeah, so I I would think that it's gotten better. I think that what AEW is doing right now is just it's it's raising the bar for everybody. Rising tides lift all ships. So yeah. if AEW is starting to get some more eyeballs on them, that's bringing more eyeballs to just professional wrestling as a whole. And I think that's amazing. In the same way that like when a really big movie comes out like Avengers Endgame, you go to the theater and then you start to see all the posters of the other movies and the trailers from the other movies and you go Oh man, 
I haven't been to the movies in so long. I forgot how much I enjoyed this. Yeah. Let's come back next week and watch that one we just saw a trailer for. I, I wonder what the shift is going to be like or if you, even you have an opinion right now because I do see a lot of people uh, leaving or getting fired from the WWE. Uh, from what it looks like to me, it's because the company being a publicly traded company. Now, I think there's a lot of shareholders. They're, they're trying to balance the book, make them look super profitable every time. So they're just taking salaries off. That's the sh- I don't think these wrestlers did anything wrong. But in the meantime, with AEW on the rise, and it's a mm. successful business, it looks good, people are having a lot of fun there, they're in a position where they might start sweeping up too many of the bigger names and something that's never happened before might happen where the WWE might not have all the biggest stars in the industry, which hasn't happened in forever. Yeah. Well, what's been interesting here is when AEW launched, all they had was two hours of TV a week with Dynamite, and then they had a pay-per-view once a month. So you basically had two hours a week to showcase your talent in the best way that you could. AEW's been an, done an amazing job of adding on Dark and now adding on Rampage. So as their roster continues to grow, they've got the ability to showcase what everybody can do. You raise a really good point, though. Uh, but what I my question is, everyone that signed a three-year contract at the start of 2019 at AEW, I would have to think not everybody is going to get renewed or maybe not everybody wants to renew their contract. What's going to happen when the first talent jumps from AEW to WWE? Because it's going to happen eventually. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but that's going to be interesting. And what's the narrative going to be when someone's jumping from AEW to WWE? And I'm not saying it's going to happen today or tomorrow or next week, but one day it is going to happen. And there's going to be a different narrative because right now the narrative is the big bad WWE doesn't let me do what I want. I'm going to go to AEW where I have the freedom and don't have to like report to shareholders all the time. And that's the thing. You're right. WWE is a publicly traded company and has been for almost 20 years. They have a lot more people to answer to and a lot more networks. AEW, sure, they have to answer to TNT and eventually TBS when they start to move their show over to there. But WWE has to answer to Fox. They have to answer to USA Network. They have to answer to Peacock. And they have to answer to all their shareholders. Do you, when you interview these guys, do you get a sense of AEW, let's say, they're, do they have that sense of we're free now and you get a more closed uh, kind of interview from the WWE guys? Or do you still feel like, eh, they do whatever they want on either side? I think what we have to realize is that both of these are television programs and television programs, whether you want to call them reality or you want to call them scripted or you want to call them live, whatever, there is a script. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them reality. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the biggest thing that we need to realize, especially as fans is there is a, a very thick script for Monday night raw, for NXT 2.0, for SmackDown, for rampage, for dynamite, for all of them. And I think the difference is when you go to WWE and Roman Reigns has a promo, the promo for the most part is scripted out, like word for word, like these are the lines you have to learn and your character will do this and the other character will do this. And I think in AEW, it's just more like Sammy Guevara has a promo. And like, oh yeah, so during this promo, Sammy, uh, maybe you'll talk about uh, this, this, and this. And, uh, you know, whatever you come up with. Improv. And it's like Kirby Enthusiasm. Got freedom. Yeah. It's the way Larry David records Kirby Enthusiasm. Yeah, kind of yeah. like that. So there's an idea of like, we're trying to get from point A to point B, but whatever you do between point A and point B, that's kind of up to you. And nobody knows your character better than you. 
Would you have uh, had the skill set to be a writer for one of these programs? Well, I think that any skill could be acquired and any skill could be learned. I think there's a ton of pressure on writers. And these are like the nameless, faceless people for the most part that are producing these shows that are either, you know, you either love or you love to hate. And I think that there's an immense amount of pressure on them, not only from the viewers and from getting ratings, but also from the wrestlers. Like you've spent all week sometimes writing out a promo or writing out a storyline and you have to be like, all right, here you go, Mr. Randy Orton. Like, I hope hope you like this. Uh, So I, I don't know if I could deal with being shot down, like either by the wrestler or by the writing team or possibly by the person who's in charge. I think that'd be so difficult, but yeah, I think I could, I think you could, I think anyone could, but man, there is a lot more pressure on them than I think we realize. I think you're right. Cause one of the only industries that I see so much continuous bad blood after the years with certain is in the wrestling industry, like you still see guys, uh, let's say Russo versus everyone or Jim Cornette, they carry these grudges past kayfabe just because, you know, one time this guy wrote this and I didn't want to do it and fuck that guy. He doesn't like me. And, and sometimes I'll hear the stories backstage. I'm like, really? This is why you've held a grudge for 20 years? Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like. David Schwimmer gets on the set of Friends and looks at, you know, episode four and goes, Ross wouldn't do that. Yeah. What do you, I, no way. Ross would not do that. Yeah. And that's the, like, you don't hear writers from like Curb Your Enthusiasm or Seinfeld or ER like, talking about like all the terrible things that went on behind I would the never ask for a scalpel. I would take it myself. Yeah. This is bullshit. <laughs> and I'm sure that stuff to a lesser degree does happen, but. I would have to think that on a normal TV show, everybody's kind of working together for the greater good of that episode, the greater good for the season, and the greater good for the show as a whole. And I think that in the wrestling world, you're kind of working for the greater good of what's working for your character. And nobody wants to lose, even if it is going to help your character down the line. But I think that's a really difficult thing to deal with. And It seems, I I don't know from personal experience, but it seems like there's a little bit more freedom in AEW. Maybe they're telling you who's winning and who's losing and how that's happening, but you can, for the most part, figure out the rest. Yeah, maybe like an indie show, you know? Yeah, like an indie show. Maybe it helps them uh, with the relationships backstage because I've been listening to some interviews recently and and it makes me laugh because when I hear like Vince Russo, still getting pissed off about someone or people hating him and then you bro bro let me tell you why this guy hates me bro but but then when you hear the story you're like this is ludicrous that is that is a high school type of feud that should not be how adults are reacting but it's not isolated to a single person it's industry-wide where they're holding these grudges for nonsense well, I think a lot of times in the wrestling world, one person is the executive producer of the show. And if that was the case on any other TV show, what they say would go, you know, and the executive producer would say, all right, here's what we're going to do with the storyline this season or the storyline with these characters. Let's figure it out. Let's write some stories around that. And I just think that there's a lot of people that are pushing back in the wrestling world. So you act as well, right? Yeah, I, I would, I'm definitely getting into acting. I've been in a few things, but I've played a reporter in the most of the movies I've been in. Which is kind of funny. 
But, but I've been in some, like, if, if you're ever looking for some movies and you want to spot a little cameo from me, I've been in some pretty decent-sized movies. Criminal Activities with John Travolta. Okay. The Bronze with Sebastian Stan. I've been in a, I have, like, two scenes in a movie called Love Finds You in Sugar Creek. And I play a reporter in all those. Also, if you look really carefully, I started out my acting career as an extra, background in, actor. In what? So if you look at the love guru, with, I'm in a scene with Mike Myers. I'm actually in a bunch of scenes. Mike Myers, Jessica Alba, Vern Troyer. I'm in a movie called Chloe with Liam Neeson and Amanda Seyfried. And recently, I'm in a very, like, half a second little spot in Cherry with Tom Holland. Cherry with Tom Holland. Okay, I'm going to yeah. check that out. I, I, I don't know if you posted it, but there's a show called Heels. Yep. And I assumed you were going to be in it. <laughs> so I saw the first episode and I was like, uh, I didn't see Van Vliet. I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know That's if you just shared it or something, but I'm pretty sure I got it off your feet. I was like, this is some bullshit. <laughs> I, I went to the premiere and basically like got to chat with the stars of the movie. That's why I assumed you were in it. I thought you were going to be a heel. The world. Let's put this out of the universe. Yeah. Season two. Yeah. Why the hell not? You, you perfect fit in that. You know what you're talking about? I see That'll them fake great. talking about wrestling. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah. yeah. I could pretend to talk about wrestling. Sure. Yeah, they, they do that. Yeah. But actually, I saw the first episode. It's not a bad show. Oh, it's a great show. Yeah. yeah. I think that Stephen Amell is so good in that character. There, I don't know who wrote that, but is it about, um, is it about that woman who had, uh, was it TNT with TNA? Is it about her? Kind of loosely. Oh, I don't know. That's a, you mean Dixie Carter? Dixie Carter. That's it. Is it about her? I don't, I don't know if anyone's got on the record to say that, but uh, I'm sure if you wanted to, you could draw the comparisons. I don't know if that's intentional or not though. I was wondering, I was watching, is this just, they can't say it right, but is that what they're trying to hint at? Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Cause I, I did know. hear a lot of stories. That's what's strange about wrestling is because uh, of guys like you, I get to learn a lot about behind the scenes what's going on. And I learned about a lot of the dysfunctions and also uh, some of the crazy, like uh, the TNA stuff with her when I found out that the, the guy from Spashing Pumpkins got in there and he was a huge wrestling fan. And yeah. I was like, what the hell is happening? This is Billy Corbin, I think his name is, right? Yeah, Billy Corgan. And yeah. now Billy Corgan owns the NWA. Oh, does he own the NWA? Yeah. <laughs> Get the yeah. fuck out of here. Yeah, so that's why the NWA has like, changed a lot over the last few years because Billy Corgan is behind the scenes there. He's going to push him online and get him to the modern world? He's even they're on fight TV. They're on, they've got a NWA power gets a lot of viewers on YouTube, but I think for heels, it's interesting that you draw the comparison with TNA. I draw the comparison with Friday night lights, like Friday night lights wasn't really a football show. It was a show about relationships and a show about family and football just was a common thread throughout it. And I feel like that's kind of what heels is like, it's about dysfunction and it's about family and it's about a little bit of like a small town business and wrestling is the thread that kind of continues throughout. Oh, well, so you don't have to like wrestling to like heels. No, no, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I don't think if, uh, even if I never watched wrestling, I think I, I would have still enjoyed it. I like Stephen uh, Amell said it best during an interview. He said, you don't have to like meth to like breaking bad. And I'm like, like, that's, you could have told me that before. Cause I got a problem now. Yeah. <laughs> You probably liked it a lot more though. Because of <laughs> Could you imagine if uh, a lot of people were like, I didn't, I didn't know this. I got into meth because they told me it was a good I show. I thought I had to cook meth to like the show. <laughs> Mistakes were made. Hollywood has <laughs> wronged me once again. Mistakes were made. Yeah. 
it's uh so it's it, i like that you have all these different um kind of interests and you're also uh you know you get to show them on your youtube channel you interview all these guys in terms of actual mma yeah because i uh, is that something that you got into recently through, or did you like fit boxing did you like that at the same time as you like wrestling or is it like a new love i watched ufc 2 as a VHS rental from Blockbuster. Oh, you were old school then. You were, you you were you were one of the OGs. Okay. And that was when it was like barbaric. Like I was six, f- 15 or 16 years old when I watched the first one. When they had the sumo I, wrestlers versus like a regular yeah yeah yeah, yeah like that. a 180 pound guy versus a 400 pound guy. And I remember my buddy being like, "Have you heard of this thing called the Ultimate Fighting Championship?" I'm like, "No." He's like, "They're like actual fights like in a cage." And I'm like, "Well, we need to watch this." <laughs> I remember spending New Year's one night, like renting like three different UFCs. And it was like UFC three, four, and five, or something like that. And I was a huge Ken Shamrock fan because of that. I, yeah, I like Ken Shamrock. And I would always be like, "Oh, somebody needs to beat Hoist Gracie. Like somebody needs to find a way." And Hoist Gracie would just beat everyone. Yeah, it was okay. I like that you were into it, which leads me into my next question. Okay, have you ever reached out to the UFC? I've done a lot of UFC interviews. Have you reached out to them to be, you know, on their uh, broadcast team? And I say this because I don't know why, but it looks like Rogan's been missing a couple of shows. (laughs) Maybe you could sneak in there. I would think that is by Joe Rogan's, you know, own doing. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Man, but Joe Rogan has been a staple in the UFC for, I think it's 20 years or damn close to 20 years. I find it weird watching fights. If his voice isn't common, that's how that's yeah. how much I've gotten used to it. I, when he's, I'm like, something missing, and it's because I got so used to his reactions. When Mike Goldberg left and then was replaced by John Anik, I was like, I I just don't like this. He was the voice of my childhood. John Anik is so good, so smooth, so knowledgeable that I listen to Mike Goldberg fights now. And obviously, Mike was one of the greatest of all time, but there's really no difference in like the difference in the sound of the voice, but the difference in the smoothness of it, it just keeps going. Yeah. Well, they like know when you watch getting. NFL football on a Sunday, you're not, you're not sitting there and being like, Oh, is this my favorite announcer? You're just like, yeah, I'm enjoying the game. And where the hell is John Madden? Yeah. You're not- <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, you're- Deep cut. Yeah, no, you're wow. not doing uh no, no I, I agree with you, but I'm thinking cause, cause you'd be uh, I don't know. I, I feel like you fit good into that. I feel like you'd be a good, I- yeah. I, and thank you. It's very kind of you to say, I think you have to be like so incredibly knowledgeable in the way that Ariel Hawani is like Ariel Hawani could tell you the record of every fighter and like their last three victories and their last loss. Like I love UFC and I watch almost every event, but I couldn't tell you the minute details of their career like that. Well, if you're comparing yourself to Ariel Hawani, he's another level. Of he's the rain man of MMA. And he <laughs> was in it Arion, when there was no profit for him. You know that, right? When he started, this was just a kid grinding because he was in love with the sport. Yep. This this another guy that worked his fucking ass off. And Ariel Hawani's job exists only because Ariel Hawani basically created this job. Yep. Yeah. yeah. He really inspired me. Like if if we go back in the YouTube days, like 2009, 10, 11. He was just backstage doing these interviews. Ariel Hawani here at UFC 98 with so-and-so. And And I was like, oh, these are getting a lot of views. Like, I have access to these wrestlers. I might as well put up these interviews on my YouTube channel. That's really why my YouTube channel grew. Because Ariel Hawani 
kind of carved a path for it in MMA. And I went, well, I'll do the same thing over here with wrestling. You see that, yeah. It's it, I never thought of, because I was never an interview guy before. I would just like to shoot the shit people on podcasts. But yeah. without noticing, I'm telling you, I know that he influenced me because of the whole self-building. He didn't care that it didn't exist. He There was no roads. He's like, I'm going to make these yeah. roads. And yeah. he did it all while getting shit on a lot of times yeah. by the very business that he was promoting, that he was showcasing. He must have some really thick skin because- there've been a lot of people who have been pretty disrespectful to him or said some pretty mean things. Shockingly, yeah. He just keeps chugging along and even though Conor McGregor, for example, has said some not so nice things about him, he still gets interviews with Conor McGregor. I think it's cuz he keeps his cool and he doesn't he kind of doesn't react like they do either, right? He's um he he stays level-headed and sometimes he'll have a retort, but it's normally tame in cons- in comparison. But a yeah. lot, like I remember, he had a whole feud with Dana White, which is yes. shocking to think about. It's like a rest. It's like you wanting all you do is interview wrestlers, but you can't get along with Vince McMahon. Yeah, and I mean, he doesn't have a relationship with Dana White at all now. No, you know, I think that Ariel Hawani reminds me a little bit, and this is going to be like a way back playback here of Michael Landsberg. Oh shit! I remember Michael Landsberg. Yeah, off the record. Yeah, yeah. When Michael Landsberg would have, especially wrestlers or Actually, really anyone. He had he McMahon also, I think. Push buttons. And, and the, the thing that blows my mind now, he would do a half-hour interview with some big names like that. I Can you imagine the tension sitting there? Because the show was live. Can you imagine the tension sitting there in the commercial break in silence and then being like, hey, welcome back to the show. And he would, yeah, I remember he would put people on the spot. They'd get nervous. He even had McMahon on. I remember Bret Hart. Oh, yeah, he had Bret Hart after the screw job, I think. You're right. He did. Yeah. Oh, fuck. It's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael Landsberg. Yeah, he got some actual hard-hitting interviews. I should do an interview with Michael Landsberg. What is he up to now? That's a great question. I'm sure he still works in broadcasting in some sort of way. You better get that interview because uh, you already have someone that's happen. waiting to listen to it. I, I also need a George Strombolopoulos interview. I don't know how to reach him. Actually, I think he follows me on Twitter. I think we can make this happen. You make that happen because I want to know what's going on. Yeah, he has a... a he has, a, I think, a very popular podcast, and I think he's on satellite radio. I think he's on satellite radio. Last I heard, he's living close yeah. to you. He's in L.A. What? Yeah, he's in L.A. Uh, last I, I had, checked. I'm, I had no idea. I, yeah. I assumed he just lived in Toronto still. No, this is what I do. I make things happen. Uh, last I heard, he was in L.A., um, and he has a successful... Yeah, I think, it's on, I think it's on Sirius or something with Apple Music. He has a live daily at 5 p.m. on Apple Music. Oh, there we go. I'm not that crazy. Yeah. He was go. one of the best interviewers in North America. Forget Canada. Maybe of all time. Like, yeah, he was great. So good. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had the great fortune of meeting him a few times, and I learned a lot from him, not by anything he directly said, but just by, like, listening and watching him. So, like, I loved The Hour. I would DVR his show, The Hour, because the way that people opened up to him and the way that he listened like he would always sit on the edge of his seat yeah always sit on the like he was so incredibly intrigued and he was but that's what so there's a and this is what i like about your your interviews is it doesn't feel robotic it's not like oh there's some guy here what do you do okay yeah let me interview it it's the same way that with him it was the person that's here is because i want to know more i'm interested in this person it felt like it was his pod like he was just starting a show himself 
And that's the mark, I think, of a great interviewer, the interest in the person in the topic. And a lot of times, a lot of the mainstream interviews you'll see, it is just people mechanically saying like, yeah, a new movie, right? And I haven't said, yeah. I'm not into action films, but uh, what are you doing it? And there's a lot of that. And it's, it, it loses a good interviewer, someone who's interested having an interview. It's, it's amazing. I think a big thing is a lot of interviewers are trying to be interesting themselves when the key is trying to be interested. Yes. Like you should be, you should be interested in the person you're talking to and what they're talking about. And I think that a lot of times someone's just trying to like make it about themselves. And I think that, I think that that's not a, a good quality to have at all as an interviewer. And I also think that interview scares a lot of people. That word interview scares a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that if you can think of it as a conversation, it changes everything. Like if me and you bumped into each other at the grocery store, I wouldn't be like, all right, I'm going to say this and then he's going to say this. Yeah. And, you know, like you wouldn't be thinking about that. You'd just be in the moment, you'd be present and you'd yeah. be enjoying it. And I think that a lot of people don't do that. And it's, it's, it goes back to what we said before about uh, the gotcha questions. Because the same mentality, instead of being like, I'm speaking to another human being, I'm interested in this topic, let's go for it. You're thinking, what are the other human beings going to prefer yeah. to find? Which is crazy because no interaction is supposed to work that way. Yeah. And I think that in the way that the press model is set up, it's an exchange, right? It's, I'm giving you something and you're getting something in return. And I understand that. Like when someone's trying to promote a movie, especially those junket interviews that you referenced earlier, you got four minutes to sit down with Hugh Jackman. And of course he wants to promote his latest film, but you want to get a little bit of personality out of him. Maybe you want to ask a question you've always had in your brain for years and now's your chance. So it's kind of this interesting dance of we're going to promote the film, but then I'm going to ask this question I've always wanted to ask. And then I'm going to do, you know, like, and you got to figure out like, how am I going to put that all into four minutes and make this a, an exchange for both of us where there's some value here. By the way, about those interviews that you did, and I think you even have a reel online. Um, and it's so funny because you have people trying to do that, but they can't emulate it because I guess it's not their actual personality. But there's so many times where they're either screwing with you or you're screwing with, you're just having fun. Yeah. And I, that will make me want to either know more about the actor or watch the movie. Cause I'm like, I oh, like these guys are having fun. This is a good time as opposed to that robot. But that's something you can't teach someone. It's either yeah. instinctually, you know, Hey, uh, it's the rock. Uh, I'm interested in the rock. I'll ask him. Yeah. I'll fuck around with him. That's what a natural person, let's say me or you would do in that situation. So that's why people, they connect with it. They're like, of course he asked that. Of course he's letting the rock say this to him. This, that's what you would have to do in that situation. And I think it's that yeah. natural feeling. That's what, that's what makes people be like, that's a good interviewer, that is a good broadcaster, as opposed to, oh yeah, that's just some guy with a microphone. Yeah, and I think that so much of this is just what is the energy that you bring to it? And an interview doesn't begin when someone hits record. An interview begins, in this case, when the Zoom window opens or the Skype window opens or in an in-person interview, from the second you see them, from the second you walk in or if you're meeting them on the street, from the second you see them from afar, that's where the interview begins. That's where you're really starting to build the rapport. And I think that a lot of, like that seems to be lost on a lot of like people that are just getting into the industry. But there's some people that still do it. I've done radio interviews where <laughs> I'll walk in and they'll have their health and they'll go, hey, man. And then they'll sit there and I'll wait. What the fuck? This is weird. I'll be like, hey, you know, and then as soon as the commercial is done, all right, we're here with Penn. And I'm like, what yeah. the fuck? This is weird. <laughs> I think a lot of radio people don't want to waste the good stuff till they're recording. Maybe, maybe that's what it is too. But I've had a lot of those. 
But Chris, but I uh, want to build up a good rapport. You know, that's my that's what I'm all about. Well, you're a master of that shit. That's why they keep coming back. But sure. I've kept you over time, and I oh. appreciate it. I want to know something. What is the main thing that uh, you'd like to promote? All your links are going to be in the description anyway. Oh, but is there anything specific that you want people to go to? I think the biggest thing is my podcast, Insight okay. with Chris Van Vliet. Thank you so much for saying so many incredibly kind things about my show and about my interviews. I really appreciate it's that. It's all true. But yeah, Insight with Chris Van Vliet. So wherever you're listening to this, you can find it. And if you're on YouTube, it's just my name, Chris Van Vliet. And we're so close, so close to 300,000 subscribers on there. It's going to happen. I retweeted that. I want I want that to happen. Yes. It's good. And also, if you're watching this on YouTube right now, there's cards. You can link right to his channel. Links are in the description. If you're listening to this, links are in the description. So you have no excuse. Subscribe, share. You know what to do. The fact that you've been doing this for over 10 years is amazing. And ridiculous. your ability to have a conversation rather than an interview is incredible. You, sir. You, sir, are a master <laughs> at this. Well, I, I don't. I call them interviews, but I was never trained in doing it. I just like talking to people. Uh, yeah. that I have interest in, and it translates into a podcast. That's all it Larry is. Larry King said it best. Larry King said, I never learned anything by talking. And that was yeah. so powerful when I heard that because I think that a lot of times people think, I mean, look, number one is you're going to get uh, the answers to the questions that you ask. Like, I think that that's important. You want better answers, ask better questions. That's just a thing in life in general. But then when you're done asking the question, shut up and listen. Yes. Yes, or else you're never going to hear the answer. Yeah. Uh, you know you know how it is, though. You get people. I remember comments of, uh, uh, oh, it's uh, the Pantelis podcast, but uh, the guest is always talking. And they're like, yeah, that's that's the whole fucking point. That's why there's a yeah, different guest every week. That's how it works. <laughs> or, yeah, the, or else this wouldn't make any sense. Why would people come on if they can't talk? Yeah, it shouldn't be 50-50. Well, a lot of people don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for this. No, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on here. Merci beaucoup. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.